0: Welcome. Um, I'm Inez Stepman of the Independent Women's Forum.
1: And I'm Jennifer Broussardis, Director of Independent Women's Law Center. It's Thursday (laughs) at five o'clock and you're at the bar.
0: (laughs) Cheers. Um, So we (laughs) grab a cocktail because uh, we are going to be doing a virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. So just to give a little bit of background, for those of you who aren't familiar with IWF, um, we are a group of conservative and libertarian women who support common sense policies that enhance women's freedom and opportunity.
1: And the Independent Law Center supports that mission in the courts and in the court of public opinion um, by advocating for equal opportunity um, and freedom for women.
0: So Jennifer and I uh, have had a few conversations in this legal space in the past and had a lot of fun doing it um, over the past year, but especially since everybody is still, hopefully for just a few months longer, stuck in this pandemic mode, um, we thought, and and since we don't always get to hang out in the happy hour uh, in a a real bar together, we live in different cities, we thought um, that we would have these conversations in a semi-regular manner. We would host them once a month. um, And we would talk about the political and cultural impact Act of legal issues, and we thought we'd, it'd be just be fun to do this on a more regular basis.
1: Yes, and today I'm drinking a rum and coke. With, you know I made vodka what are you drinking
0: you know? <laughs> I, I I just like a straight martini I drink Stoli. i I have old-fashioned views about vodka uh given my, the land of my parents birth but anyways um <laughs> so since we live in different cities as I said um we wanted to to share a cocktail and talk about some of these really important issues um that face us where the law actually intersects with the way that we live our lives so um I think that we're going to maybe we should launch into it. Um, Jennifer, are you old enough to remember when Mitt Romney was uh, conducting a war on women? I certainly
1: am. Yes, he was accused of conducting a war on women because, God forbid, as governor of Massachusetts, he wanted to assemble a list of, of or a, a binder actually of resumes of women at the top of their fields for recruiting them to his administration and. In his debate with President Obama, he artfully referred to these outreach efforts as a binder full of women for which he was just excoriated and called a misogynist and all sorts of other things.
0: But now we have a handful of proposals, we're facing a whole bunch of proposals and we'll run them down for you from executive orders, reinterpreting um, already passed law, Two um, constitutional amendments all the way up the ladder, and everything in between, including changes to federal law, that all essentially are driving at this same change that I don't think has gotten enough sort of critical thought and airtime. And that is erasing women as a legal category, making um, the, the categories of female and male some somehow um, illegitimate and unusable under the law. So I, I think that that could be pointed to as a real war on women, if, if women can no longer be recognized under the law. Um, but there are so many consequences to this, this change. Um, let's start out, Jennifer, could you just lay out, uh, you know, I, I mentioned briefly the EOs, the, the constitutional amendment. I mean, let's run through them one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, what does each one of them do?
1: Well, you have one measure that's pending in Congress right now called the Equality Act. And while the Equality Act sounds nice, we're all in favor of equality, um, what it actually does is it changes the definition of sex under federal law. So when the original Civil Rights Act was passed, it prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex, which meant uh, it didn't just protect women, it protected men as well. So it protected the binary, male-female distinction um, from one group being advantaged over another. So if an employer had a policy that advantaged men, you know, only men got bonuses at the end of the year, um, that would violate the act. And likewise if it had a policy that that advantaged women over men, that would violate the act. And there are all sorts of federal laws that prohibit sex discrimination in housing, in credit, um, in sports, in education, and they all sort of operate on this binary notion that schools, coaches, banks can't have policies that favor one group, male, over the other, female, or vice versa. So now what the Equality Act wants to do is redefine the word sex and replace it with gender identity. And that has a whole host of implications um, in each of these different contexts that, that I just mentioned. Um, we can get into some of them, but you know, gender identity is a pretty nebulous concept. So the left is trying to sell this bill as a bill that will protect gays and lesbians and the small percentage of transgender Americans. It's actually much broader than that. It's aimed at anybody's subjective feeling about who they are on any given Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. Um, So it's a pretty broad and all-encompassing law and I think it's pretty dangerous.
0: So let's get into some of these consequences, which, and the reason we're talking about all of these issues together is because they have a lot of the same consequences at the end of the day. I think we don't realize how many hundreds or even thousands of laws are dependent um, that we just kind of go about our lives and assume our common right. sense are dependent on the law being able to recognize the biological categories of male and female. Um, but let's get into some of the consequences. I, I try to talk about them in three buckets. The first bucket being opportunity, opportunity for girls and women. And of course, um, this is so often, uh, front and center. I think when we talk about these issues, maybe because it's just so obvious in the sports context, that is unfair Mm -hmm. to have girls and, and boys, biological boys competing against girls because they are stronger. They are faster. Um, but but that really makes for a lot of missed opportunities for girls. I mean, what are some of the other missed opportunities do you think, Jennifer, that um that that women and girls might find themselves missing out on because uh, of of any one of these laws, whether it's it's Joe Biden's EOs or or the Equality Act or the Equal Rights Amendment?
1: Yeah, well, I think sports is a big one and I think we should probably dissect that a little further, but but to answer your question, I think you know, there are all sorts of things: sororities at public colleges, um, single-sex dorms, single-sex dorm rooms, um, uh, women's prisons, women's uh, battered women's shelters, homeless shelters. All of these things um, are areas where we allow sex segregation. And sex seg—you know—the word segregation sounds like a dirty word because, in the racial context, it is. But Men and women really are separate but equal. Men and women are different. Um, we are equal under the law, but we need and want separate spaces on occasion, and that's not discriminatory. Um, so, you know, it'll it'll implicate all of these things. Um, and, of course, you know, you have pushback from the left. Let's take the sports context, for example. You have people saying, well, you know, it's women's sports, but transgender women are women. Well, as you point out, you know, they can call themselves what they want. And and I respect their life, their their right to live their lives as they want. But that doesn't change the biological fact that they are stronger, bigger and faster. Um, They do have an athletic advantage, which has been estimated to be at 10%. um, And that's not just at the averages, that's at the extremes as well. Um so, you know, it doesn't really matter what you call yourself or how you live your life. Um it's it's not fair to to have men and women competing together on on co-ed teams. In fact, that's why we have single sex sport, as
0: you know. So let's drill down on that um prison analogy, because I think it's legally helpful, right? So not analogy, okay. consequence, I should say. Um but so, for example, the obvious reason, the common sense reason why we separate men and women in prisons, I mean, I shouldn't even have to spell it out, right? Um, there are physical vulnerabilities. Women are more vulnerable um, to both violence and assault if they're put in with male prisoners. Uh, but uh, that has not been, if, if we take it to the constitutional law context and to the federal civil rights protection context in federal courts, that like merely escalating violence or more incidents of violence has not been ruled a important enough government interest uh, to, for example, segregate prisons by race. Right. Um, and, and a lot of times, even the people who talk about the ERA in the most limited sense, the proponents, they say, well, it's just, it's just raising sex to the same level of anti-discrimination protection as race. Well, we don't segregate by race in prison, even though there are studies in the California fought this out, I believe in the 2000s, maybe the late 90s. um, There are a lot of of concrete examples that segregating by race in prisons, if you separate different kinds of racial gangs, you have less violence, less gang violence within the prisons. Um, That was not considered, I think rightly so, not considered a compelling enough government interest um, to allow the government to discriminate on the basis of race. It is very difficult to me even to imagine the most narrow interpretation of the ERA that would somehow use a different analysis under Title VII and under, um, you know, constitutional standards standards.
1: Right. So the-
0: it would be an unprincipled exception, right? If, if violence, increased violence was not considered a good enough reason, uh, to segregate prisons by race, why would increased violence be a, a, um, valid reason for the government to continue to separate men and women? I think our civil rights law is some of the most powerful law in the country. And that is as it should be, right? Because it's dre- addressing such an important problem, but it, it, gives the government very 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 little wiggle room in terms of what is an acceptable reason to treat people differently under race in fact the only by their race in fact the only exception is is hopefully expiring soon which is affirmative action right so um they they're, they're, they're almost 25 years are ticking um but but i think that's illustrative right because it, it, it's very nice sounding to say that we should treat the differences between men and women as though they're irrelevant the way that racial differences are irrelevant, but that's simply not true in the context of sex. There are real biological differences between men and women, and those differences matter, not all the time, right? You know, not who gets to be a chemist or who gets to, you know, even be a president maybe, but, but those differences in certain contexts do matter. And those contexts are exactly contests of strength, for example, um, or, you know, cases in which a woman's privacy or safety is at stake when they cannot have single sex spaces.
1: Right. And the prison example is a really important one because under the current constitutional doctrine, Um, The Equal Protection Clause does guarantee the right of men and women to be treated equally. But as you pointed out, courts look at it using an intermediate scrutiny standard, which means um, that where actual differences exist, the state can separate men and women. And courts have held that under the 14th Amendment, under the Equal Protection Clause, um, it's okay for the state to operate separate male and female prisons. If the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution is passed and layered on top of the Equal Protection Clause, it can all o- it will it will almost certainly be interpreted as going further than that and requiring strict scrutiny, which means that sex and race will be treated the same. And as you pointed out, Inez, um, when sex and race are treated the same, that means required integration. Um, and required integration is one thing in the racial context, it makes sense. Uh, people shouldn't be separated on the basis of race. But in the in the sex context, um, very different story. Very different story. So should the Equal Rights Amendment pass, um, you know, you can look forward to co-ed prisons, co-ed dorms, uh, you know, no sororities, just social clubs that are mixed. Um, and and all sorts of things. So I, it's to me, I think, not a road we want to go down. I don't think it's worth it. I think the harms far outweigh um, any any benefit that women would receive from this.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up harms and benefits, right? Because I think, unfortunately, and and there are some some uh, procedural reasons in in the case of the ERA, and then some cultural reasons, I think, in the in the case of the Equality Act, where we're just not having an open and honest discussion as Americans about what the consequences of these kinds of, um, statutes or constitutional amendments actually will be. So in the case of the Equality Act, I think there's a lot of, um, kind of silencing in the name, right? Cause nobody wants to be anti-equality act. Um, and, and people have this instinctive, which is a good thing, right? They have this instinctive, um, American impulse towards equality, um, but when you start to drill down on some of these consequences, like for example, adding biological males to female sports, you find strong majorities in virtually every category. Right? Um, y- you find strong majorities against those consequences. And actually, there's been some really uh, interesting numbers that came out from Rasmussen, came out from a couple other polling outfits um, asking people about this question about women's sports and admitting, um, you know, biologically male transgender athletes to women's sports. And even millennials, right? Um, even my generation end up being. Uh, it ends up being there are more millennials that are against adding biological males to female sports than there are in support of it. And then even Gen Z is pretty much neck and neck. Um, yeah. Very very split. You would not imagine that those were the numbers from the way that we talk about it. And then on, on you the think f- it's go
1: just to point out that that when you get down to Gen Z. You say it is 50-50. And my daughter was even saying the other day, she saw something online about um, whether whether transgender women who were born men should be able to play on women's sports teams. And she said there were all these girls writing in, saying just because you have you know a different chromosome doesn't mean that you have an athletic advantage those are just arbitrary things so these are all people you know 18 year old 19 year old 20 year old girls writing these things and i just thought to myself you know it's great that they want to be inclusive but high level sports varsity athletes division 1 athletics olympic sports when have they ever been about inclusion they're not about inclusion they're about they're about competition and fair we, competition right and we and we divide uh, athletes into two categories male and female in order to level the playing field and make that competition fair
0: absolutely and and so I, I think actually that in many ways this issue runs straight up into, what I would say is is a free speech crisis in the United mm-hmm. States where you have 62% of Americans saying they censor their political views. I think this is one of those key political views that so many Americans censor. So um, we had an article um, from IWF published in the wall street journal about this. Um, I published an article in the wall street journal about the equality act and I got all the usual abuse online turf, whatever, which is funny because I'm not a feminist. That's what I kept telling them. Like you can't call (laughs) me a trans exclusionary radical feminist. I'm not radical and I'm not a feminist. So (laughs) I object to the F in turf, but anyway, um, was getting all of the, the usual abuse online, which is, you know, that's, that's to be expected. Um, But what really struck me are the numbers of DMs and private messages I got from people saying, you know, I, I agree with you, but I can't say it. Um, so I think this is really one of those issues where people actually, the polls show us that the majority of Americans see these common sense things and say, whoa, you know, there are differences between boys and girls. There are differences between men and women. We cannot run, you know, biological boys against girls on the track team, um, and expect to continue to have any kind of opportunity for female athletes Um, but I, I think that like just the name and then that, that culture surrounding it, that culture of fear of actually speaking out, um, is the primary problem. And I think we just got to keep hammering. These are the actual consequences. It might sound nice, but these are the in real life consequences that are going to happen if we erase women as a category Mm -hmm. from the law. And then uh, in the ERA context, in some sense, it's, it's kind of worse because, in that case, they're using procedure. And I definitely want you to speak to this, Jennifer, um, as, as our uh, law center directors and, and, uh, somebody who wrote and filed a brief on this issue, uh, in, in federal court, um, the procedure and the kind of illegitimate way of bringing a resurrecting the ERA from the dead and counting Mm -hmm. ratifications from the 1970s. Um, so by their count, they just needed to get three States. Well, three states is not long enough to have an actual in-depth conversation with the American people about the consequences. Back in the seventies, when Phyllis Schlafly was fighting against the ERA, um, she had a much longer period of time to go ahead and talk to state legislatures, to, to gather her army, right. Of, of, um, female objectors to the ERA. Um, she had not that, that length of time through the ratification process to try to actually marshal arguments against it. And ultimately, those arguments were convincing to enough of of her fellow Americans that they killed the ERA. They stopped it in its tracks. This illegitimate process, which I'm going to ask you to get into in a minute, it's short circuited all of that. It, It has denied us the opportunity and the time to have the very necessary conversation about what the consequences of the ERA actually are going to be, especially for women.
1: Right. So, you know, most people, they might not know, but article five of the constitution requires that to become a constitutional amendment, the amendment has to receive support from two thirds of each of the houses of Congress. Then it goes to the states and three quarters of the states, which means 38 today in this day and age, um, 38 states have to ratify or approve the amendment before it can become a part of our governing charter. So you know, the reason that our founders required supermajorities um, to approve constitutional amendments is because constitutional change, once it occurs, is almost always permanent, except, you know, in the case of prohibition.
0: And well, cheers up. on that one. <laughs> <Right. Yeah.
1: laughs> um, very hard to repeal a constitutional amendment. And so once um, something becomes, you know, part of part of our, our structural um Rules basically, it, it's 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 permanent and it applies to everybody across the board. So the founders wanted to make sure that supermajorities of Americans agreed before we amended our Constitution, and and those are the rules. So in the 1970s, um, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed out of Congress in 1972. It was passed. With a deadline, a seven year deadline. So, unless they got the 38 states they needed by 1979, um, the ERA was dead in the water. Well, they didn't get the 38 states. And in fact, they weren't close to getting the 38 states. So, Congress attempted to extend the deadline to 1982. Now, you and I have had this discussion that, you know, we don't even think that deadline is constitutional because it didn't have the support of two thirds of each house of Congress, which is required in the...
0: Right. um, They just kind of, they passed it through on a bare majority basis and hope nobody would notice or think about the question that uh, the deadline had expired and they were kind of right. giving a little illegitimate extension, like a teacher giving a, a, a day long extension to, to a kid who comes in with a long line of excuses.
1: Right. You have another day to get your homework in, but even assuming that, that the extension was valid, the fact remains that um, the ERA didn't get any additional states uh, after the original deadline passed. No other States joined on, um, you know, the 20th, the 20th century, was over. We moved into a new century, no additional states. And then all of a sudden, I think in 2017, um, Nevada decided that it was going to try to put this through its legislature. Now, by the time you get to Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia are the three states that ratified uh, within the past five years, it's been decades since this was first sent to the states. And in fact, I did a little research and found out that 62% of America's voters today were either not alive or too young to vote the first time their states considered this. So the whole idea that three states can come along, uh, pass something and say, well, we have the support of a supermajority of the American public is absurd. you know, especially when, as, you, as I know I've heard you say time and time again, the original ERA went from being assumed, everybody assumed it would pass. It had Republican support, President Nixon supported it. And all of a sudden, this woman, Phyllis Schafly, comes along and says, wait a minute, let's drill down on this a little bit and think about what it would actually mean, how it would actually affect women and girls. As soon as people started to see what the consequences would be, they said, whoa, we don't want this. Um, and and actually, I would urge anybody who hasn't seen the TV series Mrs. America to watch it because even though in some ways it's very biased against Phyllis Shaffley, um, it does show you the power of of citizens and and of democracy um, you know, to to have a say in in whether our constitution gets amended or not. And that's important.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And just a a wee correction. Um, So Nevada, first of all, somebody from the West, Nevada, um, Nevada passed it in 2017, Illinois followed in 2018. And then finally, Virginia um, ratified, I believe in 2020, because they missed the mark in 2019. Um, So we're talking about a very small period of time. And I want to like, just double underline what you said about It being assumed that the ERA would pass, right? You had, as you mentioned, the support of every living president up until Ronald Reagan, who, at the lobbying of Phyllis Schlafly, among others, actually had it dropped from the Republican Party platform. Um, So you had it in both party platforms. It had this momentum, it had been kicked around since the 1920s. Actually, the, the history of the ERA is super interesting because. Um, You have it in the 1920s as the the sort of um, logical next step of suffrage and after the 19th Amendment. Um, And then it kind of dies in the 30s and the 40s. And why is that? Because some of the labor regulations in in the New Deal, a lot of times the only way they could get those labor relations through the courts were to apply them to women. Um, And so some of the first New Deal programs would not have been approved had there been an ERA on the books. Um, And so actually Eleanor Roosevelt was a big opponent opponent um of the era because it would really limit the ability um of the new deal to to go forward and its rollout and sort of gets peters out gets forgotten um and then gets revived as part of the feminist movement in the 1970s and and one of the reasons i like lay out this this trajectory is i think it's interesting how this has sort of waxed and waned through american politics um and it has had something to do with the condition of women um in, in the American body politic and and then how it's been reinterpreted by, by different generations. And the reason I, I bring that up is because one of the problems of ratifying an amendment uh, that was written in 1923 and then sure. really brought to the states in the nine in the 1970s and then forgotten for the next you know 50 years, is that the words don't necessarily mean the same thing. When Alice Paul wrote this in 1923, she did not think that gender identity was part of the description of sex, right? She thought she was talking about biological sex. The voters voting in the 1970s thought they were talking about biological sex. Um, but the voters in 2016, 2017, I'm sorry, 2017, 2018 and 2020, um, they're split. And it's actually still unclear. There are uh, proponents of the ERA who say, no, this amendment does not deal with gender identity. It's a standalone amendment. It's meant to deal with the rights of women. Um, There are ERA proponents who say, no, absolutely. The definition of sex includes gender identity. And in fact, we see the Bostock decision applying that to Title VII, that definition. Well, we can talk about whether that's actually what Bostock does or um, whether it it has it as a species of sex discrimination, but but the end of the day, um, consequence is that sex in um, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act does apply to gender identity after Bostock in some nebulous way that's going to be fought out in the courts and a huge mess for the next couple of years. Um, That's certainly the definition that the Biden administration is running with and and promulgating violence. uh, violence. This is what happens when you do a happy hour broadcast, Mm -hmm. promulgating (laughs) guidance. Um, Guidance, violence, silence is violence. I don't know know where that one came from. Um, But promulgating guidance from the regulatory agencies on um, as well as the language of his EOs. Um, you know, again, we have this, we're in the midst of this debate that we just talked about, that in fact, so many people feel they can't weigh in on in an honest way about what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man, what biological sex actually is none of his stuff was accessible or even thinkable to voters in the 1970s and yet here we are considering their ratifications from 1973 um when these consequences would not only have been not discussed but like not imagined at all and so there definitely seems to be something wrong with the procedure that short circuits debate in this way that doesn't allow for any kind of of pushback or marshalling of arguments about consequences, and then um, actually swaps up the meaning of words uh, between different generations voting on this amendment. So there's definitely procedural problems with the ERA.
1: There are. But, you know, before I address those, I actually want to talk about the difference between sex and gender in terms of vocabulary, because I think it's very interesting. All of the early civil rights laws used the term "sex" as we talked about before—the binary concept of, you know, you won't discriminate on the basis of sex, meaning, you know, discriminate in favor of men over women or women over men. Um, sometime in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s, 80s, people started substituting the word "gender" for "sex." And I confess that I'm actually guilty of this. People started to use them interchangeably. And to bring up another pop culture reference, there's a scene in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie On the Basis of Sex, where her secretary is typing up her legal brief where she's arguing, um, she's making an argument about whether something violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And she keeps saying that something is discriminatory on the basis of sex. And her secretary comes to her and says, could you use a different word? And she basically says to her, all of these judges are men. When they hear the word sex, they're going to think something totally different. You should say gender. We can't distract them having them think about thinking about the intimate connotations of the word sex. Now, I don't know whether that actually happened or not, but I think that it highlights the reason why a lot of people like including my daughters will just say gender discrimination when what they really mean is sex discrimination they're uncomfortable saying the word sex so flash forward you have all these court opinions supreme court opinions in the 80s and 90s and you can read them they'll use the words sex and, and gender interchangeably in the same opinion to mean the exact same thing now those courts weren't saying that our civil rights laws prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity. They meant sex discrimination. They were just using a different word. But somehow the fact that we've embraced the word gender has led down the slippery slope to all of a sudden, oh, right, civil rights laws protect whether how you identify. But that was never the intention. To to protect discrimination on the basis of how you identify, because how you identify, as I said before, for some people it can change from day to day. Um, very difficult for employers or or, you know, businesses to figure out, you know, how they're supposed to manage that. So I think the whole linguistic thing, it's it's changed over time, and now when you put forward an amendment, as you said, that was written in the nineteen twenties using the word sex, clearly meaning binary sex, if you all of a sudden say that it's part of our Constitution now, it's going to be interpreted to mean something entirely different than the drafters intended.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's really why you do need a contemporaneous ratification process. You need a kind of meeting of the minds to bring in more legal Mm -hmm. blah, blah, into this. You you need to bring in contract launches. Um, No, but uh, you need a meeting of the minds and and not a perfect one, right? This is the the problem of originalism. Um, you, You know, the original public meaning of words, you know, legislative history you might have, especially with, with the 14th Amendment, you have um, a ton of evidence that legislators thought they were they had different ideas while they were ratifying and the idea of collective legislative intent is very difficult to identify. But you do need some kind of common conversation and common language as to what you're actually putting into the highest law of the land in order to get a legitimate consent of the governed a legitimate consent of the American people for adding an amendment, right? Cause right. We, we led into this discussion talking about how difficult it is to repeal an amendment. Right. And, and that, that is just, um, I think we, we, are owed as the American people, the time to actually consider the consequences, to consider the consequences of single sex prisons, to consider the consequences of eliminating sports opportunities for women and girls, to consider the consequences of, of, um, having to review every single municipal state and federal grant to any um, organization whose work is based primarily on providing some kind of, of benefit to one sex or the other boys and girls clubs, women's shelters, domestic violence shelters, right? Um, women's STEM programs, any program that's designed to provide a benefit, um, WIC, right? The women, uh, women and infant children, right? These are, are, um, welfare benefits that are aimed at young mothers or rather mothers of young children. Um, so, We have literally, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg writes about this, um, and she was a huge proponent of the ERA, although she is somebody um, who said, you got to start over. You got to put it back in the political hopper. You got to have this legitimate ratification process. But she wrote that there are probably thousands of laws on the books. Um, That's why the ERA has this two-year grace period before it goes into effect because the authors of the ERA recognized how much of American law would have to be rewritten to accommodate the ERA. Um, and I just right. don't think that we've had the time or we haven't, in addition to having the time, we haven't had, um, the kind of robust free speech culture that the United States is famous for. And, and that is, um, so necessary to the functioning of our democracy, we haven't had the ability to have that kind of robust, honest, open conversation where we talk about like, okay, here are the consequences of this law. You know, do we want to deal with the consequences? I mean, there are people who say yes, right? There are people who say, if if the consequence is that, you know, um, like in K- what is was happening in Connecticut, that transgender athletes take the number one and number two spot, that's the price of inclusion. Right, um, there are people who right, make that argument. That's totally that.
1: legitimate. Let's have that discussion. Instead, we're told, "Oh, if you're against the Equality Act, you're against you know lesbian, gay, transgender individuals. If you're against the ERA, you're misogynist. You're against equality for women." No, that's not the case. We want to have a conversation about what this would look like and whether the costs outweigh the benefits for women and girls. That's the conversation we're trying to have.
0: So I think uh, just this is a good time to bring up some of how our work has been interpreted at IWF. As I mentioned earlier, um, Jennifer at the Independent Women's Law Center filed a fantastic brief um, in federal court talking about some of these, exactly these procedural issues with the ERA and the reason that the archivists should not go ahead and inscribe the ERA um, into the Constitution Um, on the basis of the quote-unquote 38th ratification, right? So there are a number of legal issues here. Um, Maybe I'll just rattle off some and then you can... You can fill me in being being the actual author of this brief, but some of the issues we talked about with the length of ratification, um, the, the the issue of not having this kind of debate about the consequences or not having the ability to have that debate, but also issues of rescission, right? So um, out of the states that ratified in the 70s, some of them changed their minds. Some of them were convinced by Phyllis Schlafly um, and and her merry band, and they decided, whoa, 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 this is not ratified yet. We're undoing our ratification. So there are four states that deratified that rescinded their ratification and then there's one state that ratified with a sunset clause. So and there's the issue of the deadlines. There's um, set by Congress, and whether they ha- can legitimately just retroactively dissolve, which is what um, the the House is intending to do. They're bringing up dissolving that deadline. Um, just I believe on Tuesday next week. So we're we're coming up on it. Um, they will likely vote to dissolve that that deadline. Their contention is they can just kick that over to the Senate. And if they can get, in this case, literally 50 senators um, plus, <laughs> um, plus Kamala Harris to vote to dissolve this deadline, then that's that. The ERA is, is um, you know, sort of done and finished and, and ready to go and is in the Constitution. I mean, first of all, Jennifer, could you talk about some of the arguments that you filed in this brief? And then uh, we'll talk about how those arguments were received on the Internet.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, well, we basically argued that the ERA is expired, that, um, you know, it was sent to the states in the 1970s. Here we are in 2021. Um, and you can't just say it's part of the Constitution now because three states in the over the past few years decided to ratify it. No, they were too late. Um, and in fact, a court, a federal district court in Washington, D.C., actually just ruled that way. Um, and Accepted that our argument that that the ERA is expired. So the three states, uh, Virginia, Nevada, and Illinois, filed in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, asking that asking the judge to order the archivist to make the ERA part of the Constitution. Um, several other states intervened. The states that had uh, rescinded their approval um, and the judge the judge held a couple of things. Um, he held that that the states of Virginia, Nevada, and Illinois didn't have standing to bring the case. But then he went on and he addressed the other issues and essentially said that, that their ratifications were too late, that the ERA had in fact expired, um, that Article Five of the Constitution doesn't work that way, the ratifications need to be you know, relatively contemporaneous and Congress's deadline was valid. Um, you know, as for whether or not Congress can retroactively repeal the deadline now, I don't believe that they can, especially without a two-thirds vote, right? Because Article 5 requires two-thirds of each House of Congress um, to approve a constitutional amendment. If they get a bare majority, I don't think that's legal. And I also don't, I think it's probably unconstitutional, even if they had two-thirds, because it's expired. So if it's dead, they can't very well take action on it. but, you know, this is something that ultimately I think will have to be resolved by the Supreme Court.
0: So in some mm-hmm. sense, these are, are dry constitutional arguments, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're talking and uh, we have drinks. where like, I, I don't know that my typical happy hour conversation would include um, talking about the Expiration. the rules for Article 5 and okay. um, rescission, which I believe, and you can correct me, the court did not touch in their decision. They, they never reached the question of rescission. Um, like you said, they didn't reach the question of whether Congress can dissolve the deadline, and I agree with you. I think this is going to be kicked up the ladder. Um, that these are, are fundamental questions aside from the merits of the ERA that have to be resolved in terms of, of what are the rules for amendments, especially as um, ERA proponents will argue, especially because of of um, the amendment that we passed in in 1992 uh, that actually started as the Madison Amendment. So that was 203 years. Now it's the only exception and courts have treated it almost like a, uh, am I allowed to say the word bastard on here? Like a bastard child. Like they, they have treated it, um, not, they have not enforced. Um, they have not enforced it at all. It has to do with congressional pay. Like Congress constantly raises its own pay and like nobody has standing to challenge it. And the courts haven't really taken it seriously. Um, and, and some, some, um, legal thinkers, I was reading some of, uh, and I can't recall right now, uh, Whose um, law review article I was reading, but th- there were some suggestions that perhaps part of the reason that courts do not take it that seriously is exactly because it was ratified 203 years after it was proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there, there are some open, important procedural questions that I think really do need to be resolved. Um, but but to to just say again, these are not. You know, you wouldn't think that these would be the questions that would get you screamed at, um, or or insulted, or um, what have you. But there there are some folks over at Equal Means Equal who are equal rights proponents, um, and they wrote a blog post about uh, the Independent uh, Law Center's brief. So they wrote that that a woman's group would support the suffering of its own people is as mind boggling as stories of enslaved people who insisted emancipation was a bad idea um so this is a, a blog post from again equal means equal um headed up by uh, wendy kamala natalie Thelia, and the eme team my my favorite part about this blog post is that it uses the wrong it's uh there should not be an apostrophe there uh but yes <laughs> women's forum files brief power. against its own equality jennifer are you against women's equality?
1: Such a ridiculous blog post. It's uh, it's. I didn't know whether to be enraged or to just start laughing. But you know, the notion that we can't have a conversation about what the consequences of this would be, and we can't let the voters of America weigh in on this, uh, without basically being like slaves who want to remain slaves. I mean, it's it's
0: it's, it's actually a- really like I'm insulted not for me or for women or, or for the independent women's forum, actually from that angle, I find this completely hilarious. I do think it's quite insensitive to use slavery as an example. Um, I think that's very much making light of slavery in the same way that I sometimes get pissed off about the constant refrain of Nazi, 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 like it cheapens the, it cheapens the horror of actual you know, historical bondage, talk about filing a brief in court on the procedural merits of a constitutional amendment in a democracy. Um, And to say that to compare that to being against abolition of slavery as a slave is just a ridiculously hysterical uh, sort of reaction. But But you know one of the, the, or at least perhaps don't know, but you have had run-ins with one of these blog post author um, ladies before, Wendy, right? So, Wendy
1: um, Murphy. She's the head of Equal Means Equal, and uh, we're both up here in Boston, so we've had an opportunity to debate each other on on various women's issues.
0: Well, one of the times that you uh, had a chance to to debate her was actually on the issue of Title IX and due process on mm-hmm. college campuses. By the way, we are absolutely in the next few episodes, we are going to cover that issue. It's a critical issue, and especially as the Biden administration is moving uh, to try to roll back the protections that Betsy DeVos and the Trump Uh, Department of Education have put back into place basic due um, process protections for those who are accused of sexual misconduct on campus. So um, Jennifer had a a little debate with Wendy um, on a, a, what channel were you on? Is that MSNBC or?
1: It's New England Cable News.
0: New England Cable News. Um, So we're going to roll that clip and see how that went for Wendy.
1: There's nothing special about sexual assault that needs special rules. That's a bunch of nonsense. And all these so-called feminists who say we support it, they're criminal defense attorneys or ideologically aligned with the criminal defense bar or they support the ACLU, they're pro-porn. I mean, they are not Let me they're just tell you but, that but, a, a, but coalition, a coalition of conservative and liberal law professors from none other than Harvard Law School, has come together to say that's the, p- the group I met. Th- th- right, pro, OK, pro Nancy rapist. Gertner, Betsy pro Barclay, pro-racist. represent no, represents rapists rapist all the time. OK, being an attorney. She's and- a rapist lawyer, okay. so don't call okay. her a feminist. You know what? I'm not here to defend Nancy Gurdon or anybody good. else, but I will tell you that everybody in our system of justice has a right to an attorney. That doesn't make the person not who represents them, I doesn't No, if you're a lawyer for a person accused of rape or a person accused of selling cocaine, that doesn't make you pro-rape or pro-cocaine. But you really you taking, are doing you a job. Taking the-
0: <laughs> well, yeah. uh, actually, th- this is something that, and this is kind of a tangent, but this is something that often bothers me in politics. Um, we saw Hillary Clinton, for example, just to defend somebody on the other side of the aisle. We saw Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign accused of, um, being, a, a insensitive to, um, I believe it was something like child molestation or something because she had defended as a defense attorney, somebody who was accused of a heinous crime. Um, I mean, without people, this is like a corner stay of the legal system, um, especially of our legal system. Yeah. If you can't have an advocate in court and have a fair trial as a result of having that advocate, that legal advocate in court, we don't know whether, and this, you highlighted this with her um, at a different part of that discussion, we don't know whether the person is innocent or guilty. We don't know if he actually, or she actually committed the crime. Um, that's the point of having a fair system but, but this is, I don't know, this whole clip makes me laugh because it's so obvious that you know the law and you're talking about the basics. Actually, I don't even want to, I mean, you do know the law, but it doesn't take, I, I never practice, and I know these things, right? Just like a first, a one L in every law school yeah, in America knows these things. And yet like they're sending, um, Wendy into hysterics about being pro rate because you're in favor of, of a fair criminal justice system with due process. Like, sorry, Wendy, we don't believe in throwing out due process. We don't believe in not discussing the consequences um, of the ERA, uh, and we don't believe in in you telling us what we can and cannot discuss as women. Um, If you wanna be hysterical about that, that's fine, but we're here to have the actual legal and political and policy conversation.
1: Right. I mean, this is a woman who who went into court and claims to speak for all women in the United States when she demands that the the Equal Rights Amendment be made part of the Constitution. And anyone who disagrees with her is like an enslaved person who, you know, or pro-rape or pro-rape. I mean, it's just it's, you know, this is what we're dealing with. So hopefully you and I can have more of these conversations, uh, you know, uh, at, at the bar um, where we can hash these things out and talk about them fully and
0: not get called rape supporters, but who knows? <laughs> um, speaking, speaking of calling us things, you can do vent, or uh, you could <laughs> ask a constructive question uh, by uh, putting your question on uh, the independent women's uh, forum Facebook page, or you could uh, reach out to us on Twitter, Jennifer Braceres and, Inez know, Stepman, my at handle is at Inez Felcher. Uh, it's my maiden name. But uh, you can find us online and ask us directly or send us a DM. Or you can ask on the Independent Women's Forum Facebook page. Or you could email us. You can find all of Independent Women's Forum's work um, at IWF.org. Um, but yeah, we would, we would welcome your questions about how your life might intersect with the law. We will not be answering legal questions like your issues with your landlord. That is not what we are here to do. Please go and actually ask a liar and ask a real lawyer who is going to represent you in a, a adversarial system that apparently Wendy thinks is really terrible. Um, However, if you have a question about how the law is going to actually impact you or a Supreme Court decision is going to impact your life or a policy or a proposed change to the law, um, those are the sorts of things that we're going to be talking about. So like I said, we're going to touch the Title IX issue and due process issue. Uh, We're also going to go into administrative law and and, um, what bounds, if any, we should be placing on administrative agencies and how they've kind of usurped the function um, of Congress, the lawmaking uh, function of Congress and how we should or should not bind uh, their power in that way. We're going to be touching on a whole host of of other issues. And when those big SCOTUS decisions start getting handed down, we will definitely be here to talk about them and answer questions. So like I said, write us a question, shoot us a note, um, call us pro-rapist. If that's your jam, we're just going to laugh and move on with life. But um, we would love to hear from you. We we really hope that you've enjoyed this as much as we have.
1: So join us next month. I think the third Thursday of April at five o'clock at the bar. Cheers. Thanks for joining us.